0: Thank you for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at redeemerdenton.com. Well, God's will is a blessing. However, sometimes that's hard to believe, right? Colin Hansen, in his new book, Gospel Bound, tells the story of a man named Beckett Cook. Here's what Hansen says about Beckett Cook. Ten years ago, Beckett Cook was a perfect example of success in America. He'd thrown off the Catholic shackles of his youth, came out of the closet as gay, and moved to Hollywood. He had the natural eye for production design, kept meeting the right people, and climbed the entertainment industry's ladder up and up and up. Hanson goes on to share that Cook worked with the most famous actors and actresses. His work was in uh, some of the most well-known magazines in the country. And he hung out with and partied with some of the most famous people in the world. And he became wealthy uh, from his work. He had it all. He was uh, living life by his own terms. He was living according to his desires. You could say he was living according to his will. However, Cook says that even though he had this, um, these amazing experiences... Quote, I, I still felt something was missing. And he kept asking those eternal questions that we all ask. Who am I? What am I doing here? What's the meaning of life? And then one day he was at a, a, a fashion show in Paris, which I've never been to one of those, but he he was at a fashion show in Paris and, and he was just struck by an idea. Here's what he said. If this stuff isn't doing it for me anymore, what on earth will? I've done everything. I've met everyone, I've been everywhere. What am I going to do with the next 50 or 60 years of my life? Listen, worldly success isn't bad. Knowing everyone, you know, going everywhere, you know, doing everything, that, that's not bad in a sense, right? Worldly success isn't bad. However, if, our, if we ultimately are putting our hope in our own worldly desires, if we're living according to our own will, there's a danger of believing that our will will actually lead to happiness. Where in reality, if we live according to our will versus the Lord's will, it's not going to lead to the happiness that we think that it's going to be. It's actually going to be soul killing versus soul filling. Today we're studying Genesis chapter two, and we're once again going to see that God creates. That's the big theme of Genesis one, two, and three, right? God creates. In the past couple of weeks, as we really looked at Genesis 1 over the past two weeks, we saw that not only God creates, but we focused in on his method of creation, which is God speaks. That's how God created. It was, it was he communicated and then life happened. Of course, physical life happened in Genesis 1 through God's word, but we also know not only does... Physical life happened through God's word, but spiritual life happens through God's word. So when God communicates, life happens. In Genesis two, we're gonna see another creation account. And I'm picking my words carefully there because some have tried to pit Genesis one and Genesis two against each other as if they're two separate creation stories really in, in reality, they're harmonious in the sense that Genesis 1 is kind of like this big picture view of creation or creation in a general sense. However, Genesis 2 is more specific in that it's looking at the creation of humanity. So there's this specific focus on the creation of humanity in Genesis 2. Many of the themes overlap, but in Genesis 2, it provides some additional teachings on God's will for humanity. Therefore, like Genesis 1 Genesis 2 teaches us that God creates. However, he intentionally creates, and thus he has this desired, intended will behind what he creates. He creates humanity with an intended purpose. Therefore, not only is his creation a blessing, but also his will, his intentions, his desired end is a blessing. And and that's what we're supposed to see in this first chapter. I think there's kind of four parts to this uh, to this chapter. Number one, that God creates. God creates humanity. God creates for humanity. And then the fourth one is that God creates humanity uh, 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 for community and for his mandate. And what I want us to see today is that we are to believe his will is a blessing. His will is a blessing. Look at God creates, Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, in the day of the Lord, God made the earth and the heavens." this is kind of the opening of the section. And in Genesis 4, we see a phrase that that God uses over and over throughout Genesis. And and this little term, it means to kind of divide up the book. And so if you continue on in Genesis, you'll see Toledot is the Hebrew. In the ESV, he uses the generations. Your version might say the account of or the history of. And this is, again, just a, a literary marker of what's going on, that he's dividing up, trying to highlight that, okay, this is what God has done, and this is a history of what God has done. The second thing that's important about this first verse is that God does some, something kind of unique in, in how he describes himself or the names that he uses for himself. Now, if you look up at Genesis 1, he uses the word God. Now, the Hebrew for that is Elohim. And when we were in Genesis 1, we uh, uh, noted that Elohim is, is a plural word. So God's A name for himself is in the plural, and I I think that's a nod towards the Trinity, that God exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those things are not the same person, yet we're monotheistic. So Elohim is this plural name of God, but it also has something to do with God being the creator God. So when Elohim is used, it's a reference to him being a creator God, so it's perfect for Genesis 1. This other word that's used here, and typically in the English version, it's all caps, and it's Lord. But it's in all caps. What's behind that in the Hebrew is the word Yahweh. And so this is another name of God. And and, and again, the uniqueness here is that they're put together. But Yahweh, instead of emphasizing the fact that he's a creator God, really speaks to the fact that he's the covenant making and keeping God. So when Yahweh is used, it's a reference to his covenant, that God makes these promises and that he keeps his promises. So by putting them here together in Genesis 2, we see that God is the creator God who is all powerful, but also he's the promise making and keeping God. So he has redemptive purposes in all that he does. So the God of the Bible is the creator as well as the maker and keeper of promises. He creates his people, but he also has a relationship with his people of the sort that he is loving and he's redeeming his people. So God lovingly creates his people. And that gets to this second point, that God creates humanity. Let's look at uh, Genesis 2, verses 5 to 8. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, In addition to this uh, general account uh, from Genesis 1, this passage provides a more specific account of God creating humanity. And if you remember from our past two messages, the the main phrase on what does it mean to be a human is, is that we've been created in the image of God. The Latin for that is Imago Dei. And there's a lot of debate on what that means, but we talked about that uh, being created in the image of God means that we're like God in some way, that is different than the animals. We're not the same as God, but we're like Him in ways that the animals are not. And I think the best way to understand that is like God, there's a physical aspect to who we are. There's a mental aspect to who we are. There's a spiritual aspect to who we are. So like God, we have thoughts, we have feelings, we do things with our hands. We we create, we dream dreams, we sing songs, we write poetry. All of that is very godlike behavior. But also the Imago Dei means that you, as a human, just by the fact that you are a human, you have inherent value and dignity in the eyes of the Lord. You, you are worth something to God. He made you in a certain way because he loves you and he likes you the way that you are. So you have inherent value and dignity. The fact that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, verse 7. This is a powerful image of what's going on here. And it speaks to the fact that God has passionately created humanity. In fact, this image goes even further to highlight the intimate nature of God's work. It's, a, it's warm and it's personal. It's as if, if you can picture this, it's as if God is kissing humanity into existence. He gets right up in his face and he breathes into his nose the breath of life. So there's something very passionate about what, what God is doing. He cares deeply about this humanity that he that he is creating and that he's breathing life into. And also this life is his life. He's breathing from the inside his life into humanity. So this is coming from him. The light that we have comes from him. He is giving humanity life. Now, let me chase a rabbit here for a second. This will be worth it, I promise. There's kind of a debate on the nature of humanity. One camp is called the tripartite view of humanity. The other one is the bipartite view of humanity. Stay with me. Tripartite three means that humanity consists of body, soul, and spirit. Now, the problem with that is is there's great debates on what is soul and what is spirit. Uh, There's no consensus on that. That's why I like the bipartite. There's really two parts to humanity, that we have a body, and then we have a soul and a spirit, which are synonymous, soul and spirit being the same thing. So we have an inner man and an outer man. We have an immaterial aspect to ourselves, and we have a material aspect to ourselves. We have a soul and a spirit, and we have a body. That's what I think uh, this is speaking to here. He's speaking to that inner man, that soul that's inside of him. So he creates Adam. He has a physicalness about him, but he doesn't have this soul until God breathes it into him. Now, Genesis 2, 7 explains that our soul or our spirit or our inner man is passionately and intimately and personally uh, uh, created by God. God breathes that into us. It comes from God. After the first man's physical body was formed, his inner man was given life from God's inner self. Now, I believe there's a deeper spiritual connection here, and let, let me choose my words right here, that God has given us a spiritual life in order for us to experience spiritual life. But but to experience that, it's through connecting to his spiritual life. Do I need to say that again? He's given us, he's created us to have this spiritual life. And the way we experience this spiritual life that God has intended for us is that we do that through connecting to his spiritual life. According to his will, it's not towards chasing the things in the world that we're to believe will bring us this abundant life. In other words what God is saying here is that he creates humanity but he does it consistent with John 10:10 10, 10 and Psalm 16:11. Jesus said in John 10:10, 10, 10, "The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly." And then Psalm 46 or Psalm 16:11 says, "You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy." At your right hand are pleasures forever. So again, God has given us life so that we can experience life, abundant life. And the way we do it is through his life, through his way and through his will. Genesis 2 not only gives us an account of God creating humanity, but it helps us see that his will is best. This is what God desires for us. His will is always best. We're to believe that His will over our own fleshly desires. The takeaway, I think, from this teaching is that God has given us His life in such an intimate way that we are to believe that we are to find life through connecting with His life. When I was in college, I was just trying to chase life, but chase it kind of through my own <laughs> fleshly desires. I, basically, 19-year-old Micah wanted to have fun. And that's what 19-year-old Micah was all about. He was just pursuing fun. Let's have fun. And whatever fun was, I was up for it. And so I was pursuing life in that way, according to my own will. I had a kind of a, a, a silly college prank, and it got me in trouble. And But God used it in a way to kind of help me take stock. He disciplined me and really kind of helped uh, get my attention. And I remember that I was processing all that was going on, getting in trouble with this prank, and I was processing that with some of my buddies that I was running with. And I remember one of the guys said, man, that stinks. Let's go get drunk. And in that moment, God just changed my life forever. I realized I'm on the wrong path here. I'm pursuing something, trying to find life in something, and I'm experiencing the opposite. There's something very uh, selfish and shallow about what I'm doing. These are not real friends. That's not the response of a real friend. There is something here that I thought was life that is not life. I began a journey to find life in God's will. God's given us life in order for us to experience life, but through connecting with his life. And that leads to the third point, that God creates for humanity. Look with me at verses eight and nine. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In these two verses, we see this creation of Eden. Eden means a place of abundant waters. And that's a description of what it was, but there's something behind that, right? Who are the abundant waters for? The abundant waters are for humanity. So not only does God create humanity, but he creates for humanity. He puts humanity in this place where they can thrive. Biblically, a garden is a good and a happy place. In fact, this image of a garden is used later on for eternity. And a garden, maybe for us today, the best way to think of it is like a park. Like when you go to a a beautiful park or a great city park, there's usually a couple of things going on there, right? Right? Like there's some people that are resting. Maybe a couple's on a date and they're having a picnic and and they're they're just chilling, they're resting. So they're experiencing abundant life through rest. And then maybe you have some young guys over here and they're playing soccer. Like there's adventure going on over here, there's fun. Both of those things happen in a garden. Both of those things happen in the Garden of Eden. It was this place of life. It was this good place, it was a happy place. In verse nine, it explains that the vegetation was both pleasing to the eyes and it was good for food. So the garden was pleasant, and it, and it was good. It was attractive, and it was lovely. Nature's intended uh, to do something good for our souls. Th- this summer, Krista and I just, we were kind of cutting through near where Yellowstone was, and we had some extra time, and so we, we cut through a portion of Yellowstone, and I had heard something about the Grand Tetons. I, I didn't, I mean, I, I think I knew they were mountains. That was about it. And we cut through the end of the park and come out of the park, and you see the Grand Tetons, and we were blown away by them. In fact, they were so beautiful, we just instinctively had to put on worship music. And we just sang and worshiped as we overlooked these mountains. That, that's what they were intended to do. They, they just, the beauty of them fill our soul. And that's what nature does. And in a similar way, that's what was going on in the Garden of Eden. There was something attractive and soul-filling and lovely about the garden but also there was substance there, right? You see, our our food comes from nature. So the garden was emotionally as well as as physically good for humanity. It was all of those things. They were able to flourish. There was a blessing on all these different levels. Again, the garden was not primarily for God or for the animals or for the trees, but it was for humanity. Finally, within the garden, there's these two trees. You have the tree of life and you know, there's not a lot of commentary on what is the tree of life and and, and why was it there. However, it's probably best understood that at some level, the tree of life was meant to bring good and life to humanity. And then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's not much mentioned here, but it's going to play a big role next week in Genesis 3. But let's keep reading uh, verses 10 to 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon; It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows, out, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This description is supposed to uh, help us see that this place was just ripe with resources. There were all these good things here. It was a place of plenty. It was a place of blessing. It was this glorious garden of all this, uh, this good place of life. Now, somewhere, this is somewhere in between, like, uh, Iran and Africa is somewhere where this is. And there's, you know, a lot of debate where this is. Now, my favorite of the places is Havala. And the reason for that is, is that we have a lovely Havila down in Redeemer Kids. And I had some good exchanges with Oli uh, and Margaret this week on, okay, what does Havilah mean? Because I did a deep dive on that name, and there's a lot of debate on what that uh, word actually means. And so they helped clarify some of it for me. But Havila, even though it's it's difficult to understand the root meaning of it, it means whirling or or circling motions, almost like dancing. It it also has another meaning of of strength or being strong. There's also kind of this third meaning where it has something to do with dreams. But again, this is just my you know, selfish shout out to Habla, because I think it's a beautiful name and an excellent choice for the name of a little girl. That's my favorite part of, of this section. It's this place of whirling and circular motion and strength and dreams. Okay, let me keep reading. 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. First, we see a divine mandate to work and keep the garden. We saw this in Genesis 1, that this mandate of creation was that humanity was to come under God and have dominion over the earth and was to keep it and to work it. And we've seen that this mandate is is that you're supposed to work. As a human, God's will for you is to work, and that's good. Work is cursed and fallen, but work is good. You're supposed to take something, whatever God has given you for those work hours, and you're supposed to make the world a better place with that. You're to invest creative energy into that. His will for humanity is to work. But we also see the first restriction from God. God's will was for the first humans to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, he says here that, uh, that this, was, uh, this was his, his word, his, his law, his will. In fact, they could do all these other things in the garden. They could play, they could prosper. There was so much freedom in the garden. And he just kind of gives them this one thing, this one thing that they're not supposed to do. There's this restriction here. Now, to be really strict on it, they could climb in that tree, they could build a tree house in that tree, but they were not to eat the fruit of that tree. Now, I think it would have been a wise thing to just have nothing to do with the tree, to not even come close to the tree. However, the, the, the strict reading of it is just don't eat the fruit. This is their one law. This is God's one clear restriction, his, his will for them. And there's a consequence for violating the will or the word of God, and it was death. And this is likely a double emphatic to this death, meaning that you will die, die. I think one way to understand that is that when they were to eat of the fruit that they would die spiritually and that they would die physically. There was just that type of of spiritual death that would happen when they would eat that fruit. So God creates humanity. He creates for humanity. He created a good and happy place of abundance and life and blessing. His will was for humanity to have dominion over that place to, to work. His will was for humanity not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was His will. This was His law, His word. And now we turn to to, uh, God's further creation of relationships. Look at verses 18 to 20. God creates helpers. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what, what he should call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man uh, the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, if we remember that when God originally created humanity, not only did he say humanity was good, he said humanity was very good. Yeah. But all of a sudden we have the first thing that is not good the first thing that is not good is being alone being alone is what is not good that's because god has created humanity uh, for for community for fellowship for relationships introverts you are my people and i love you but your daydream of spending months on end at a cabin in montana that would not bring you happiness that's my daydream i think that sounds awesome But in reality, God has not created us for that. You'll go crazy up there. You are created for people. You're created for relationship. It's not God's will for you to be alone. It's not good to be alone. Practically, that's why all Christians are called to be active members of a local church. Christianity is a togetherness spirituality. You're supposed to do it with other people. If you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. If you're not opening up your lives to others, then you're not living according to God's will. You see, if no one knows you and you don't know others, then God has something better for you. This passage is also a picture of humanity participating in the creation mandate. You see, he had dominion over creation. However, none of these animals could ultimately fulfill that helper community relationship hole in that man's life. If I've turned into an animal lover the older that I've gotten, and so if you're an animal lover, again, you are my people. But that pet, that labradoodle, golden doodle, whatever you got there, they are awesome. They are a gift from the Lord. I'm convinced of it. But 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 you are lacking something if you're trying to find community there. Okay, you need something more than that. You, you need something more than these things. He goes around naming all these animals. They were all a blessing, but he's given, he, But they needed something more. They need, he needed a helper. And that's where we are in Genesis 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, uh, he made into a woman And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Martin Luther, I think, had an interesting take on, okay, why did he take it from the rib? This is speculation, but I think there's something to this. Luther thought that, okay, he didn't take from uh, Adam's foot because he didn't want Adam to rule over Eve. And He didn't take from his head because he didn't want Eve to rule over him. He took from his side because he wanted them to walk through life together. They, they were helpmates. They, they were to live together in this, in this helpmate way. I, I think that's a great take on it. Our uh, English translations, I think, don't fully grasp the poetic and passionate nature of this passage. Hopefully, in, in your version, twenty-three is kind of bracketed off, and it, and it kind of looks like a poem. And, and I think that that's really helpful if that's what it is, because Adam has a really passionate response to Eve. Adam's response is basically, "Wow." He he looks at this helper that God has made him. He says, "I needed a helper, but wow." This is he, he describes her, okay? 23 is a description, but this isn't like dry VCR manual description, right? There's something really passionate and poetic about his response. He he describes her, but in that description is a wow. The the creation of Eve moves Adam deeply. There's a sense that from Adam's perspective, this is the pinnacle of creation. There's nothing better than this. This is amazing the frogs, the the birds, the dogs, that was great, but there's something special here. Verse 24 then gives a mandate for humanity. God's will is for men and women to leave their families' homes, then marry a spouse, and then build a new family with them. I think we should be very clear that a multiplying society is a healthy society. When we see societies that are shrinking in population, There's something deeply spiritual, theological, and culturally wrong with that society if they're shrinking. A healthy society is a multiplying society. God's will is to get married, uh, uh, leave your family, get married, and start a new family. Now, like we've said at other places along the way, Jesus was the perfect human, and he did it differently. So so it doesn't, to, to fulfill the creation mandate, means more than this. That's a broader category, but specifically that's what it means here in verse 24. Verse 24 also says that like Adam and Eve, it's good and its, it's God's will for man and woman to have a one flesh marriage relationship. Well, finally in verse 25, this sums up kind of the moral status of what's going on, and it serves as kind of a bridge to the next chapter. They were innocent and not ashamed. They were not covered, and they didn't feel shame about it. Now, hear me, this is not an argument for a nudist colony. This is to highlight that that they were not yet corrupted by sin. They were innocent. There was a a purity about them. They were very good, meaning that they weren't corrupted by the disease of sin yet. Okay, Genesis 2 teaches once again that God created It gets into these these specifics of God creating humanity. God creates us. He also creates for us. He also creates us for us. He creates us to have community and relationship and friendship and all of these things. This is His will for us. His will for us is for us to have dominion and to work. His will for us is to have community and relationship. But is God's will a blessing to you? If this is God's will... How is it good news? How is God's will good news? How is, it, how is work good news? How is community good news? Let me read Romans 9, 21 to 24. There's a great image here that I think is helpful for us. Romans 9, 21 to 24. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We are the clay, not the potter. That's the point of Romans 9. We're the clay, not the potter. The, the good news is not that you spend your life wandering around, staring at your belly button, exploring every weird claim of truth in order to, perf- to, to, to find your purpose. Existentialism has failed. It's selfish, it's self-absorbed, it, it's, it's foolish and it's futile. No, no, the good news is that God has plainly explained his will for you. You don't have to run off to Tibet to figure out, okay, what's my purpose in life? You have this. You have God's will for you. It's plain and it's clear, and that in and of itself is good news. Two things here. First, work as unto the Lord. Work as unto the Lord. Get up every morning and seek to make this world a better place with your work. Whatever you've been given Do it, uh, uh, whatever you've been given to do with your workday, do it to the best of your ability. This is a call to work as unto the Lord. That's God's will for you. The, The second thing that I think is God's will for you from this passage is to love one another. This means invest in people. If you're married, devote yourself to your spouse, loving her, respecting him. If you're a parent, shepherd them. Pray for your coworkers, pray for your neighbors, call your mother. Schedule lunch with your sister. Find a church and really commit to it. Be here more Sundays than not. Jump into a small group and, and, and talk and listen and pray for other people and let them pray for you. Grab Pastor Josh and say, I'm not serving anywhere. I need to do some sort of ministry. Can I help and redeem our kids? Find a hobby and share the gospel with those around you. Love one another. Isn't it good news to just know you see, the, those realities of love one another and work as unto the Lord, that's good news just to know. Because you don't have to waste years pursuing your like, identity and your career. You don't have to waste time with that because you know God's will for you. You don't have to travel to Tibet in search of some mystical truth. You don't have to waste uh, your time with fads of the world or, or toy with crystals. Work clay. And the potter's will for us is to work unto the Lord and love one another. But let's be honest, if you're like me, sometimes you don't want to work. (laughs) Sometimes some people are really hard to love, right? Well, that's where I think the good news gets even better. It gets, frankly, great news. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So in our time of need, Those moments where we don't want to work, those moments where that person's really hard to love, God is a helper for us. And to get even more specific, Jesus said in John 15, 26, that he has sent us a helper. He sent us a person. He sent us his spirit, and that spirit helps us to fulfill his his will. When it's hard to be diligent with tasks that you're not passionate about, he can help you. When you When you need to love an unlovely person, he can help you. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that God's will is a blessing. However, this is one of the main reasons that God has given us Genesis 2, is to be really clear about his will. This is one of those building blocks of a biblical worldview that we build our lives upon. This is God's will. But we're, uh, we're to remember that his will is good. His will is true, even when it's hard to believe it. His will is a blessing. Even when it's hard to believe, it's his will is always better. Colin Hansen, again, in his book, Gospel Bound, he claims that living in obedience to God is where you will find real fulfillment and meaning. I think that's right. He he goes on to then apply that to sexuality. Hansen says that our sex lives shouldn't be about us. They should be about glorifying God. And then he goes on to finish Beckett Cook's story about where he found abundant life in God's will. Cook has written a book called A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. Cook explains that about six months after really being burdened at that fashion show in Paris, that he was sitting in a coffee shop with a friend, and they were talking. He looked over, and he saw a group of young people who were doing some sort of a Bible study at the table next to him. They had all their Bibles open, and they were discussing God's Word And so he goes up to them, and and he just directly asks them, okay, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And and I think pretty courageously and faithfully, and they graciously, they said, our church believes the plain teaching of the Bible, and so we believe that homosexual behavior is sinful behavior. And and here's what Beckett Cook said. "I, I appreciated their honesty and that they didn't beat around the bush. But the reason I was able to accept their answer was because I had that moment in Paris. Five years earlier, I would have been like, you guys are insane. You're in the dark ages. But instead, I was like, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe this actually is sin. So I was open in that moment. This group of young people invited him to church with them that next Sunday, and he came. And even though Beckett Cook had grown up in the Catholic church, he had never really heard the gospel. He had never heard that the reason that Jesus came was to atone for our sins. That Jesus came, gets up on that cross as a substitute for us. That he pays our debt that we couldn't pay. So that when we die, we're not there on the hook for our sins for eternity, but we're covered by the blood of Jesus. That was the purpose of Christ's coming. Not that we would uh, somehow have a relationship with God through all of our many good works. We could never have that many good works. But we can have this relationship with God because of Jesus' one good work. He heard that message and was converted. And here's what he now says. Quote, your life is a vapor. You're here for two seconds. What do you want your life to be at the end when you're on your deathbed? Do you want it to be, oh, I got to satisfy all those urges and got all the things that I wanted? Or do you want it to be told, well done, good and faithful servant? You spent your life on mission for the kingdom of God. Believing God's will is a blessing. And even though it's a blessing, I know it can be hard. But that doesn't mean it isn't good and it isn't true. God's will has always been hard, but it's always been a blessing. Friends, the, the God is the creator God. We're not. He's the potter. We're the clay. He tells us his will, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. It's good to know that we are to work unto the Lord, that we're to love one another. It's good to know that he died not only to forgive us of our sins, but also uh, to help us live according to his will day in and day out. His will is a blessing, even when it's hard. And I pray that we're a people that lands where Beckett Cook landed. He says, quote, I'm happy to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. May we be a people that believe in and follow his will. That we would be more happy in denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for Genesis 2. Not only does it give us these building blocks of life of where we came from and giving us clues into uh, where, what, what we're about, what's our, our purpose, but it really helps us see that uh, the way that we're supposed to live Lord, I pray that uh, we would see your will as a blessing, not as something that gets in the way of of the life that we're pursuing, but that we would see it actually as an avenue to life, that we would see even denying ourselves, even though it's hard, it's good, and it leads to blessing. I pray that we would be a people that would trust you and believe in you enough that we would follow your will and that we would experience the blessing from it. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray, amen.